You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, our guest is Dr Shelley Jeffcott, a psychologist who studies, teaches and applies the science of human behaviour to improve patient and resident care. In this podcast, we'll examine how to protect staff and maintain trust in times of crisis. Shelley, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what type of work you're doing now? Hi everyone, it's really great to be here and I've been in the UK, specifically in Scotland, working as an embedded part of frontline teams, doing a lot of work designing, developing, testing, implementing and then evaluating safety interventions for a large program of work that was a national program called the Scottish Patient Safety Program and now I'm working at the Scottish Ambulance Service and doing a lot of work with paramedic teams around how they work, how they interface with other pre-hospital colleagues in major incident scenarios and so on, simulation and other really interesting ways that we can start to look at how we work better together and how we become safer and how not only are we trying to improve performance, but we're always trying to improve the well-being of both staff and managers and all the people at different levels that are delivering care. For me, the issue of trust and teamwork were really important. They're things that we often take for granted because in aged care, that's how we work every day. What's been your experience in Scotland around the complexities that COVID's created for hospitals, aged care facilities and the general population? So my background is looking at human factors and ergonomics, thinking about safety in a number of different high-risk organisations. You know, it's a tragic time. We're seeing death in service in the Scottish Ambulance Service and in the NHS. We know in Scotland there was between 30 and 40% of deaths that we have experienced so far have been in care homes, but that has in the last week just hit over 50%. So we have a real issue where some of our personal protective equipment has been not able to reach care homes and care home staff. It's been diverted into the NHS. You know, we've got people taking huge risk every day, but continuing to work in in unbelievable circumstances. So, yeah, I feel really concerned and really aware that when we talk about health and social care, actually, very often what we're really talking about is health care. And we have this huge sector that we don't necessarily understand and appreciate and incorporate into the way that we think about a safe system as a whole. What I've seen with the pandemic is that some groups are working extraordinarily well, others have become fragmented, and some of us are trying to do everything by ourselves because we think it's better and quicker if I do it and I know the job gets done, and because it's so serious I can't rely on anyone. Why does that arise and how does that impact on how we work together as a team? In the current circumstances, you're unable to take on the burden in the same way. So where systems and processes don't keep you safe, 
where we traditionally stepped up, we may not have that capacity. So you're absolutely right. We're having to fall back onto our teams much, much more. I think trust is a really important concept. I think much more about this idea of psychological safety. So this shared feeling that it's okay to be open and honest in a group setting. You know, things are changing rapidly. Communication is coming at us from all over. We're overloaded. Things are changing in terms of decisions on a daily, hourly basis. We're going to make mistakes, but we have to know that the people that are in charge are not going to be focusing on that. They're focusing on how we get through this and how we are able to innovate, how we're able to share ideas we have, how we're able to challenge where we think decisions maybe aren't working, because this is such a changing landscape in such a rapid way. How do we cope with that? How do we remind people that they are part of a team? It's important to feel that you're part of a team because the burden is too great on your shoulders, particularly with all of the added stress and anxiety about, you know, care workers bringing the virus back to their loved ones. But I think how you bring that feeling of not being alone is really hard. It doesn't have peer support groups currently. And these are things that are basically just tapping into that kind of informal helpful support that you get from your peers and your supervisors. So your supervisors ordinarily are part of a performance management chain, so you wouldn't think that you could talk to them. But I think that supervisors are really critical in terms of there's a wealth of evidence that having a supportive supervisor can protect your your mental health and can keep you well. And so they're people that have done the job before you. And so peer support networks is this idea that you can And normally they should exist and you can tap into them. But I think we need to create them now on the fly. And it really is using technology, you know, video calling when you can, WhatsApp groups, you know, actually being able to connect in that way throughout the day. I know you can't be using your phones in the current climate, but times when you can, when you're on your breaks, I don't know whether to tap in if you work in an isolated way and talk about challenges and opportunities at work but in a way that you feel is safe and a way that even if you work in an isolated way, you can tap into that camaraderie and the idea that other people who know what it's like to walk in your shoes right now are sharing their advice and their opinions on things that you're thinking about and ways that you're feeling. Can I feel like I'm in a team when I've got that type of hierarchy? And is my team only my co-workers who are at the same level as me? Look, I think that I've become quite interested in the work by Lessioni. He talks about the five dysfunctions of teams. And that's the first is the absence of trust. The next is the fear of conflict. The third is a lack of commitment. The fourth is avoidance of accountability. And the fifth is inattention to details. And I think that if we run along hierarchical lines, we are more likely to fall into one of those dysfunctions. And so it's not easy for us at the bottom of the pile to make that sort of change. That has to happen higher up in the organisation. And that has to be because managers decide to be leaders and make decisions to be able to be vulnerable toward us, to be open to talking to us, finding out who we are, how we are in the path of our work as well. And that's a really a longer term way of shifting culture. But I mean, I've always said that culture isn't something that happens to you. It's something that you are part of and you can create. And I think that actually hierarchy is a very subjective thing in lots of ways. I mean, it's very odd sometimes the decisions that get made about who progresses and who doesn't. Some of the best and smartest people I've ever worked with 
are the untrained staff. Well, they're not untrained, obviously, they're unregistered. I think everyone has value in how you actually begin to create opportunities for people to come together and to show their value and to speak up and show their experience is important. So, you know, hierarchy is confirmed by the fact that we often don't give people seats at the table. We have different meetings that happen with different groups and that needs to be busted open and we need to be able to cross fertilize and we need to have multidisciplinary and multi-level groups that come together. Stuff that I think that on a human level can actually enable us to spend more time together and build into that team that is really critical to stop these dysfunctions happening. I just wonder whether we could go through those five dysfunctions again and think of how they play out in uh, social care, as it's called in the UK, or aged care in Australia. Would you mind just going through those one at a time for us? So, yes, I can. I can go through them. The first about absence of trust goes to what I was talking about, really, this idea of psychological safety. So without trust, we're much less likely to be able to understand the work that happens. We're much less likely to to hear from the voices we need to hear from in order to understand the nature of what the real challenges are and what the real opportunities are. Have you seen the the iceberg of ignorance, which looks at 100% of the problems are known at the bottom, 75% of the problems are known to that supervisory level, and then as you move up higher and higher, the top level you get to a sort of between 7 and 10%. So you get this muting, this actual censorship of the reality of what's happening at the front line as you go up because people don't want to hear bad news and people are frightened to share bad news. It's something that doesn't necessarily go down that well if you're given a talk where you talk about the iceberg of ignorance and some of the top you know, execs are in the room. But I think people do appreciate that that's a function of the culture and that's something we need to break out of. So my interpretation of that is That means the personal care workers and the support staff, the gardeners, kitchen hands, they're the ones that know what the problems are in social care. Absolutely. They're the ones, they're the most important people in terms of us being able to solve any of the problems that we have because they're the people that day in, day out face them, that day in, day out innovate and work around the rules that sometimes don't fit the work. I learnt more from the clinical support workers. I learnt more from those people that were actually, in truth, at the bottom of the hierarchy. They had eyes and ears and sights and sounds on what was happening and an understanding of some of the dynamics between people and some of the dysfunction in the team that some of the people at the top had no idea. There has been little evidence that the personal care workers have been consulted or incorporated in any strategy that I've seen. That's something that we, we know is happening because people's own personal fear, people being uh, redeployed in different ways. So yeah, it's, it's a really moot point that we want to hear from you, but actually we're not there to listen and we haven't given you a telephone number or an email address even to, to let us know. So the second dysfunction is around fear of conflict. This, this is something that I find fascinating and it's, it's psychological research back from the 70s around group think. So although we are all individuals with our own views and our own worldviews, sort of like high school, we still want to be popular. We still want to be in a harmonious group. Even if it's dysfunctional, we don't want to stick out. It's a, a frightening thing to be other. So that fear of conflict can suppress our ability to be open and honest. 
And I think that that, that is hugely problematic in many different ways. Some of what we, we've found in other industries is you get a lack of near-miss data. Just to give an example of a, a near-miss maybe is uh, putting your PPE on in the wrong order, but you can't actually go and confess that. Yeah, no, it's a really good example. And so if, if that kind of information isn't shared, then the problem isn't fully understood. And so the people who can actually do something about that problem don't know that they need to. And the idea of lack of commitment is an interesting one. That's the third one around these dysfunctions of a team. That's not that people don't do their best or want to do their best. It's more about the idea of not really having this constancy of purpose or really having a shared mental model of the plan of work, of what you're all trying to achieve, a shared goal. And so people become a bit disenfranchised when they're not really uh, they don't really feel that they're included in the decisions and that, that they're included, that they get a full picture of what's going on, that they're well communicated with and so on. So lack of commitment is something that when we talk about from a psychological perspective, this intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, you become less intrinsically motivated so that I just am determined to do my best and I just am proud to be working in this team versus extrinsic, which is I'll do it because I'll get, you know, in trouble, I'll get my wages docked or, you know, that's extrinsic. That's a yucky way to be working. That's a, not a nice environment. I think we're now moving on to the fourth. The fourth, so avoidance accountability. So there's this idea that, you know, again, as I said earlier around psychological safety and having leaders who are able to admit that they've done wrong or that they didn't know all the answers, that they did the best they could in the circumstances they were in, that's really, really critical. And if they don't do that, they're avoiding being accountable, then that filters down and that can be really toxic in a team. Thanks very much, Shelley. That's described the first four dysfunctions very clearly. If I recap, the first was an absence of trust. The second was fear of conflict. The third was lack of commitment. And the fourth was avoidance of accountability. The fifth dysfunction is inattention to results. And that's the focus of the team member being on personal success, that I value myself more than the success of the team, that I want to maintain my status and want to protect my ego and put that in front of or before everything else that the team needs for us to succeed. That's pretty clear, so I won't go into it. And I must say that that dysfunction, I don't see very often in aged care. I certainly see it in other settings, but in, in aged care, the teams tend to focus far more on the person and team in front of them rather than themselves. We'll now move on to the next part. So you told us all the things that could go wrong. How do I do it right? What do you suggest helps a team to perform better? And what do you think of this idea of situational awareness? And is that relevant in the COVID pandemic? One of the things that we've talked a lot about is this staff engagement and actually empowering people to be part of the way that we organise and the way that we make decisions and enabling that creating mechanisms that they can get heard, 
that they feel they can speak, but that they actually, that information gets used meaningfully. And situation awareness is another big factor. It is about how do we come together and form a sense of where we are right now and where we might be going next and to try and do that as regularly as possible. So it's about check-in points. Now, you may not have the same opportunities to come together as regularly in a care context, but you can create those. That's something that can be hugely supportive of the way that a team works is to actually have that shared understanding of the plan and of where you are right now to stop people from feeling isolated. How do you address the question from staff that say, well, this is a day just like every other day and you're wasting my time doing this briefing? Yeah, I find it really interesting how if you don't think something's useful to you, you don't think it's useful full stop. And that's a really dangerous assumption because there are always new people. In a care home context, you are not always a stable team. You have bank staff, locum staff, you know, there are lots of people getting crook in COVID. There are people who are having to be borrowed from the health sector potentially in this country anyway. So you've got a lot of instability, people that don't know each other and people who are new in an environment. So I think that you're right. I think you can be a little bit cynical sometimes about, is this a waste of time? But it's, it's actually really important. It's not just about you, it's about everyone. It's about everyone having the same shared idea and everyone having access to your knowledge. So if you don't need to get something out of that brief, you may need to contribute something in that brief. So, you know, that is another way for you to be able to be part of, of us getting better together and being, you know, heard and being more innovative. From what you've said, the most valuable player are the people that are doing the majority of the work and under-recognised, and so they would be our personal care workers and the support staff on the ground, not the managers, not the CEOs who are always the ones that are front and centre. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of this stuff isn't front and centre. People think it's sort of just flows along and work will just find its way and we'll just form our teams and we'll all just rub along and and figure it out. And the reality is that we need to design systems that support people. If we want people to be well and if we want them to perform at their best, then we need to create those opportunities that doesn't just fall out of the sky. So, you know, how teams are formed, how they're better supported, how psychological safety is supported, communication, good communication flows up and down across groups, breaking down silos, engaging staff, creating situational awareness, opportunities to share mental models and things. All of that is front and centre for me about how we do better in health and social care. So it's been really lovely to have an opportunity to talk about some of this and I just send all my love to Australia and just everyone stay well. I think from what you've said, Shelley, it it seems clear to me the issues with the pandemic aren't necessarily the virus itself, but the fact that we don't have good systems or sufficiently robust systems to manage when we hit a crisis. And that is something that we could be better prepared with because there will be another crisis. It might not be a pandemic, but there will be some form of massive stress and the characteristics of being an empathic person who's able to lead, cooperate and respect others would seem to be the secret to a good response. The other thing that's hugely important is how do we learn? How do we do a really good job of trying to understand what's changed, what we've done differently? 
you know, old practice doesn't isn't fit for purpose and we can chuck out what new things have come about that we can create and embed into the norm. So everyone can be part of trying to think about learning and you might be given an opportunity at the end of all this to share. It's probably a really fabulous way for you to be part of helping to make change in the future. On that note, we'll finish. Thanks, Shelley.